Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and you are listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast. Crafted by me, a self-confessed history geek who enjoys those stories from the past that might have been forgotten. The Backtracker History Show is first aired on Bradley Stoke FM in Bristol, England, before being plonked onto the podcast stage for all to enjoy. Now, if you enjoy the show, don't forget to share or leave feedback. It all helps. Keep in touch via either Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK. The event in today's tale occurred in 1918. But what else happened that year? Well, we had the Battle of May Island. A confused series of collisions as a large Royal Navy fleet steams down the Firth of Forth. Submarines HMS K-4 and HMS K-17 were sunk. Three other submarines and a light cruiser were damaged and 104 men were killed. On the 1st of April, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service were merged to form the Royal Air Force, and the Women's Royal Air Force was founded to provide mechanics. On the 26th of August, Cecil Chubb donates Stonehenge to the nation. And on the 11th of November, World War I ends, as Germany signs an armistice agreement with the Allies. George Edwin Ellison becomes the last British soldier to be killed in the war near Mons in Belgium. But in December 1918, some of the captured German U-boats from World War I were toured around the country by Royal Navy crews, and two were brought to Bristol, and one of those was the U-86. They were moored in front of the Hippodrome, The area was still part of the floating harbour then and would only be covered over later. Bristolians eagerly queued up to go aboard and look around the U-boats with their entry fees going to charity. But at that point, nobody knew that the ship they were eagerly looking over had been responsible for the killing of more than 90 Bristol men in cold blood. On the evening of June 27th, 1918, the hospital ship Landovery Castle was crossing the Atlantic, returning to Britain after taking wounded Canadian trips home, captained by E.A. Sylvester. There were no injured people aboard her, but there were 258 crew and medical staff. About 100 of the crew were from Bristol. Though she was showing bright lights and was clearly a hospital ship and therefore should have been immune from attack under the normal rules of war, the German U-boat U-86, commanded by Lieutenant Zerzi Hemlet Patzig, torpedoed her. The German captain then tried to cover up a war crime by deliberately ramming the lifeboats and machine-gunning survivors in the water. Only 24 people escaped 
on a single lifeboat. They were rescued shortly afterwards and testified as to what had happened. The 234 others on board Landerie Castle were lost, including 14 nursing sisters. We're not sure how many Bristolians survived. It may just have been two. One of the victims was William Joseph Clements, aged nearly 17. He was sending his wages home to help his parents' finances. At the end of the war, when the German fleet was surrendering, the crew of U-86 did not talk about what they had done. It was a few years before any attempt was made to bring them to justice. The commander of HM destroyer Lysander told the Daily Express newspaper... I was returning to the base on my way back on Saturday morning last, about nine o'clock in the morning or so, uh, and I sighted a boat, and as I got close to it, to discover only it contained no survivors of the Landovery Castle. I took them aboard and gave them some food, and they looked quite cheerful for that, but were definitely suffering from, like, stiffness, having been adrift for, what, 36 hours? The captain told me that at 10.30 on Thursday, his vessel had been torpedoed. I mean... His first feeling was of shock, as if a bomb had been dropped on the ship. He rang full speed astern to assist the lowering of the boats, uh, and at the same time, the attack, the ship was uh, carrying the usual nautical ambulance, ship lights, etc. Uh, but after the first crash, the captain went back to his cabin to collect his pouch and his pipe. I mean, the pipe afterwards was really useful in the communal areas for the use of the survivors. Um, the reason why no SOS was sent, I think, was because the wireless was put out of action by the top hamper falling down as the Landovery Castle sank stern foremost. It is certain that some of the boats were lost at launching. I mean, this is true of the first boat dropped containing 14 nurses, I understand. The submarine was then seen shelling and boats remaining above the water. The last the captain and his little crew heard was the submarine firing upon them. Not even a matchbox from the wreckage has been discovered. It's awful. It's worth mentioning at this point that even though the wireless was badly damaged, the operator still tried to send an SOS message and ended up going down with the ship. Let me give you a little bit more detail about the Landovery Castle. Grossing 11,423 tonnes, Landovery Castle was not an express liner, but had been the first Union Castle ship built solely for the East African trade. She had entered service a little earlier in 1914, and, following the outbreak of war, continued to serve in peacetime duties for a while, before being requisitioned for trooping duties. Then, on the 26th of July, 1916, she was commissioned as a hospital ship to serve the Canadian forces, with 622 beds and 102 medical staff. Evacuating the wounded from the Western Front to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Painted white overall, with a bold yellow fennel, green hull stripe and red crosses prominently displayed, there was no mistaking her function, which guaranteed her safety under the Manual of Laws of Naval War, as provided under Article 41, as follows. Military hospital ships 
that is to say, ships constructed or assigned by states, specially and solely with a view to assisting the wounded, sick and shipwrecked, the names of which have been communicated to the belligerent powers at the commencement or during the course of hostilities, and in any case before they are employed, shall be respected and cannot be captured whilst hostilities last. Military hospital ships shall be distinguished by being painted white outside with a horizontal band of green about a metre and a half in breadth. After the war, the captain of the German submarine, U-86, Helmut Patzig, and two of his lieutenants were arraigned for trial on war crimes. But Patzig fled to the free city of Danzig, and his trial was stopped on the 20th of March, 1931, by virtue of the laws of amnesty. Lieutenants Ludwig Dithmar and Johann Bolt were tried in the Leipzig court in Germany, and the room was more crowded than any other previous war crimes trial. This trial was different to the others as it was initiated by the German public prosecutor. The British government wanted Patzig, but he had escaped. During the trial, Dittmar wore his naval uniform, complete with medals, whilst Bolt wore a black morning suit. The charges put to the two men were that they first torpedoed the Landovery Castle and then fired upon the lifeboats. When asked what they had to say, Dittmar simply replied, I gave my word to Lieutenant Patsig that I would never speak about the case and I will keep my word. Whereas Bolt said, I obeyed my commander. His orders were law. I am not guilty. I am proud to have served under such an officer as Lieutenant Patzig. Bolt then started on a long speech, recalling Patzig's feats of heroism, but the president stopped him, saying, We know the German officers are keen and brave, but what has that to do with the case? Bolt just continued his speech, adding that if all submarine officers had been equally magnificent, Great Britain would never have been able to maintain its hunger blockade or dictate the terms of the armistice. And now, my friends, we're going to get some fresh air as we head off to the races in our big stroll. The big Bristol to London stroll. Hello and welcome to the big Bristol to London stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. And for today's stroll, we're staying in Newbury and visiting the races at Newbury Racecourse. The racecourse held its first race meeting on the 26th and 27th of September 1905 at its current location in the Greenham area on the southeast side of Newbury, West Berkshire. The first recorded racing at Newbury took place in 1805, though, with Newbury Races, 
an annual two-day race meeting at Enborn Heath. The meeting lasted until 1811, when it transferred to Woodhay Heath, until 1815. Now Newbury Racecourse didn't come into existence for another 90 years, until April 1904, when the Newbury Racecourse Company was formed and purchased the land and then construction began of the buildings and stables at the cost of £57,240. Copper King, ridden by Charlie Trigg, won the opening race, the Whatcom Handicap, and the trailer, Charles Marnes, was presented with a silver cup valued at £25, and Trigg received a gold-mounted whip valued at 10 In August 1915, the War Office took over parts of the racecourse for use as a prisoner of war and troop camp. The centre of the track was used by the South Midlands Mounted Brigade to pitch their tents. The Newbury Weekly News reported the arrival of the first three Germans on Friday the 4th of September 1914. The prisoners lived in the horse boxes and also in tents. German and Austrian civilians were also brought to Newbury, and by early November, about 3,000 were held there. By December 1914, the detainees were moved from tents and stables to ships off the south coast. In August 1916, the Ministry of Munitions requisitioned the entire racecourse as an inspection depot and tank repair park. It was also used as a hay dispersal centre for cavalry units. At the beginning of World War II, the camp was again requisitioned as a troop camp for the Berkshire Yeomanry, followed by the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, and then the Lancashire and Royal Fusiliers. The stables were used to house prisoners of war. On the 9th of April, 1941, two bombs fell on the racecourse. In August 1942, the racecourse was handed over to the US Army as a depot and marshalling yard for Greenham Common, and during the remainder of the war, 37 miles of railway track and concrete roads were laid at the racecourse along Straight Mile towards Lower Farm. The racecourse was used by the Ministry of Supply as a depot for disposal of military equipment at the end of the war, and following lengthy clean-up operations, it reopened as a racecourse in spring 1949. If you're wondering where doing this massive walk to raise money for suicide prevention Bristol, in memory of Sarah, a listener and friend, and if you want to make a donation to this worthy cause, then head over to Just Giving, type in Backtracker and you should find our page. But right now, we're going to continue our adventures in the Big Stroll. One of the witnesses was John Murphy, a seaman, who said he saw four lifeboats, all fully laden with reliable sailors, or capable of handling a boat. Before the gunfire, he saw flashes from electric torches in the other boats, but afterwards, nothing. 
He went on to say that the submarine glided around his lifeboat several times and almost capsized it. The first German witness was Petty Officer Walter Poppitz of the U-boat, who told the court how the Londovery Castle was spotted and bearing the regulation lights for a hospital ship. He said the submarine followed her as they always suspected hospital ships were being used illegally, adding, we knew from the German newspapers that the English abused hospital ships. But when asked by the president, the witness admitted that there was nothing suspicious about this ship. He went on to say that they tried to dissuade Patsik from attacking, but he wouldn't listen. Poppitz went on to say that the submarine dived and then fired two torpedoes before coming back to the surface to witness the results. Directly afterwards, the crew were ordered to go below deck and stay there. They had the feeling that something horrible had happened. Half an hour later, they heard the sound of machine guns firing and formed the impression that lifeboats were being fined on as there was no enemy ships in the area. The president asked whether the second explosion they heard on the hospital ship sounded like munitions. Poppet said that it was the boilers exploding. Patsy called the crew together two days later telling them that whatever had happened, he took on his conscience before God and acted as he did for the benefit of the fatherland and wanted no one to say anything about it. It was inferred that as the crew were below deck, the ones firing on the survivors could only have been those on trial. Later, when the submarine struck a mine, the German sailors said it was God's punishment for sinking the hospital ship and firing on lifeboats. Lieutenant Kinect, the first engineer of the submarine, said that after the attack, the crew were very depressed, and when he told Patrick this, as well as the fact that he himself would never have fired on the hospital ship, Patrick had replied that he wished he hadn't. The final witness was Major Lyon, who had travelled from Canada for the trial. He said that when boarding the submarine, a German officer seized him by the wrist and threw him so violently to the deck that he broke his leg. During interrogation on the submarine, he gave a detailed inventory of exactly what equipment had been on board, as well as the number of patients and crew. Afterwards, as he was leaving the submarine, a German officer whispered to him in English that it was better for him to get away quickly. Lyon added that Captain Sylvester was given the same advice and they took it to mean that there was going to be trouble. When asked what weapons a hospital ship had on board, he had replied that it had none, not even a revolver. As the Major ended his time giving evidence, he added that when he was in the lifeboat, he felt sure that the sub was going to ram them and he jumped out. In the court, there was a large number of the prisoner's friends. When the verdict was entered and the sentence pronounced, the prisoners themselves looked more cheerful than at any time during the trial. But that soon changed when they heard the sentence. President Schmidt began by sentencing each prisoner to four years imprisonment, and Dittmar was dismissed from the Navy, whilst Bolt, who had already retired from the Navy, was stripped of his civil rights. The prisoners were found guilty of manslaughter. The president went on to say 
that the hospital ship was torpedoed against the law of nations, as everything on board was in perfect order. Furthermore, the sinking was against all regulations of the German Admiralty, as the ship was sailing in waters where her torpedoing was forbidden. As to the firing upon the lifeboats, he said, At least three lifeboats got clear from the ship, and there was no reason why all should have not been picked up like the captain's boat. All three must have been afloat when the submarine began firing, and two must have been hit. The court finds that those boats were fired upon intentionally, with the object of removing witnesses who could testify to a misdeed by the submarine commander, and the proceedings have shown clearly the ideas in the mind of Patsig. The suggestion that the action was not over was quite unfounded, as the fighting had certainly stopped and the U-boat was in no danger. The President then paid a high tribute to the second officer of the Landovery Castle, whose evidence, he said, was clear and convincing and was fully confirmed by the German witnesses from the submarine. The court found that both the accused had taken part in the firing and participated in the cover-up. They were also declared as being acting under the impulse of the moment and their deed was not premeditated, therefore they were guilty of manslaughter and not murder. The occupants of the lifeboats were totally helpless and at the mercy of the submarine. The accused would have done their duty if they had refused to follow Patsy's orders and also in refusing to comply with his demand for secrecy. The President concluded by saying, This terrible case casts a shadow over the German Navy and the whole submarine war. Although Dittmar and Bolt were convicted and sentenced to four years in prison, they were released after only four months, after their convictions were quashed on appeal, on the ground that the captain was solely responsible. Patzig escaped justice and again worked for the German U-boat service in World War II. He died in his bed at the age of 96. The Leipzig trials would eventually evolve into the international criminal court. I do hope that you found today's tale interesting, as I have so much information to share with you that I'm going to make this part one of two on this special subject. The next episode will have more detailed witness statements from the people who were involved in the incident. Ted Bundy murdered my dad's friend in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained, spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true crime cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the impossible murder of Julia Wallace, share terrifying true stories from our listeners about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's lost tomb. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries, 
sacred and sonic geometry, the mistress of murder farm, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the horror film The Omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. News just in. Boffins at Bradley Stokes Science Labs have discovered what the difference is between a literist and a kleptomaniac. Apparently, a literist takes things literally, and a kleptomaniac takes things literally. Back in the day facts. On the 29th of August, 1883, seismic sea waves started by the Krakatoa eruption create a rise in the English Channel 32 hours after the explosion. On the 31st of August, 1971, Beatle John Lennon leaves England for the final time, moving to New York City. On the 1st of September, 1715, King Louis XIV of France dies after a reign of 72 years, the longest of any major European monarch. On the 2nd of September, 1666, the Great Fire of London begins at 2am in Pudding Lane. 80% of London is destroyed. On the 3rd of September, 1189, Richard the Lionheart is crowned in Westminster. 30 Jews are massacred after the coronation and Richard ordered the perpetrators to be executed. On the 4th of September 1992, singer Harry Nilsson makes a rare and final concert appearance, joining Ringo and his all-star band for a version of his Without You at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Backtracker History Show. And there's still so much more information to share with you. So, don't miss next week's part two of this interesting tale. And of course, a huge thank you to those people who have made the show come to life. And also made me look good. In this episode, they were Steve Shepard, Henry Arnold and John Locke from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group here in Bristol. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise, featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, 
Take care and look after each other.